morning. There we go. Am I a little bit loud? Or is that fine? It sounds loud to me. Maybe you guys can hear it a little bit differently. Um, wow, that was good to take communion again. Um, I hope that uh, you have felt the same as I have to, to miss it for so long. Has it been three months now, at least, uh, since I think we've taken it, if not closer to four? And here we are, finally able to take it again. Lord cares how we believe and behave, and he cares that we take um, his body and his blood together as a church, as a holy people in his place. The Lord is not limited to these four walls, but there is um, uh, a specialness to the gathering of his people. Where his people are, there he is. And it's been the same throughout the whole history of his people. In fact, the story of the Bible can be summed up as God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Here, his, in this time, his people is the church. His place is wherever his people may be found. His rule and blessing is the new covenant brought by the work of Christ. And in the time of Amos, the people are the people of Israel. His place is Israel, and his rule and blessing is the Mosaic Law. There are many differences and many similarities to our times, um, but at least one thing that remains the same is the character of Yahweh, that he cares that his people be holy, and that they go to him and they believe and they behave correctly. As we begin, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the proclamation of the good news that we hear it and that we are able to respond, that we may be united with you through the body and blood of Christ. We can be united together as your people in this place so we may be changed so we may go and proclaim the good news to others and do good works to commit acts of justice and righteousness among the nations Lord may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you as we come to the book of Amos it's in the name of Christ that we pray Amen Book of Amos, another, yet another book of judgment. I tell you what, it's as my first time preaching uh, two weeks back to back. And uh, I get two, two bangers right back to back, two books of judgment. Wow! Um, I hope, though, that you do see the grace in these books that Yahweh, he is, uh, you know, committed, he is a God of justice and he's a God of grace and love. For this book of Amos, it's, it's a tough one. There is a glimmer of hope at the end. I, I will spoil that for you. There is a glimmer of hope at the end of the book of Amos, but we have almost nine full chapters to get through before we get to that glimmer of hope. He opens up in chapter one 
and part of chapter 2 with these messages to the nations. Begins the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. This is significant. Sometimes we pass over these introductions like they're nothing, but they give us clues as to how to interpret the text correctly. Tekoa, if you're not familiar, is near Jerusalem. It's in the southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember back in the book of First and Second Kings, we hear about the story of, uh, stories of David and Solomon, his son, ruling over the nation of Israel, the united kingdom. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, with some unwise counsel, made some decisions, and a rebellion was incited with Jeroboam the first. Not this Jeroboam here, that's mentioned in verse 1. But then, with that rebellion, came the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Southern kingdom having Jerusalem, the northern kingdom having uh, Bethel. And Amos is in this northern kingdom, but he's not from there. He's from the southern kingdom. So Yahweh sends him from Tekoa, near Jerusalem, to the northern kingdom to proclaim his message to Jeroboam II. It's a time of prosperity. Jeroboam II was a pretty good king on earthly terms. He was militaristically powerful. He made wealth spread across the nation. He was uh, economically savvy, I guess. But he, along the rest of uh, the line of the northern kingdom kings, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he led his people into that evil. And the Lord sends Amos to go and speak to them, these collection of oracles. Verse 2, Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. We heard from Joel last week of the Lord is roaring. It's a sound of victory and judgment against his enemies. And here it is the same. The Lord is roaring. He's pronouncing judgment and he is in Jerusalem, and they hear it all the way to Mount Carmel in the very north of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he opens into these decrees against the nations. We see these chunks. There's one in verse 3 uh, to the end of verse 5. We see, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron, so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael. And it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, and I will break the gate bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. That's a chunk. And there's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six more before we get to Israel. Six, seven, seven, seven of these chunks of proclamations against the nations, and they all have similar structures. For three transgressions, yea, no, for four, I will do this. I will not revoke the punishment. This phrase of for three and for four, just saying, you've done these three things. I've been patient with those, but you've done, you just one, done one too many. Not that the Lord had the number four in his mind and say, once somebody sins four times, then I'm going to judge them. It's not like that, but it's just saying, I've been patient with these nations, and here they are sinning yet again. 
the straw that broke the camel's back, and now I will not revoke the punishment I am sending upon these people. And what is it that they're doing? Violence and injustice. We see things. They've threshed Gilead. They've carried into exile a whole people. They delivered up their brothers. They've pursued their brothers with the sword and cast off all pity. They've had anger. The Ammonites did a horrible thing. They ripped open pregnant women in Gilead. They burned cities to the ground. They rejected the law of the Lord. Really violent and horrible things. And it leads to their own fire and destruction. What these texts reveal is that Yahweh is not only Lord of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, but the nations surrounding them. He's not limited to one plot of geography. He is Lord over this whole world. But it does something interesting as well, and I believe it's a a fun little homiletical trick, a little uh, rhetorical method that Amos employs here that I think is very key. We see these, these segments, these small segments against all these nations. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites, Moab, and Judah. And if we look at a map, I wish I had gotten with the audiovisual team before this morning, but if you look at a map and you pinpoint all these cities, what it does is it spirals in the Holy Land until eventually you get to Israel, like a target. Bullseye, Israel is pointed out. And that's what he does in chapter 2, verse 6. He finally gets to judgment on Israel. To an oracle that goes from verse 6 to verse 16. Three times as long as any of the other oracles against the nations. Israel might be feeling pretty good about themselves once they hear, oh, there's a judgment against Damascus. Oh, there's a judgment against Gaza, Tyre, the Ammonites. Oh, yes, they're our enemies. We hate them. Oh, wait, you're getting, you're getting to Judah? Uh, now to us. Okay, and it's three times longer than anything you've said so far. Yahweh isn't just the judge of the nations. He's a judge against an unfaithful people that claim to be his own. These accusations against Israel reveal their mistreatment of the poor, reveal sexual sins and defilement of God's holy name. And it reveals that they have forgotten Yahweh's salvation. Verse 9, Yahweh says, It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? Have I not saved you? Have I not provided for you so that you may hear my word? But what did they do? You made the Nazarites drink wine, a.k.a. you made them break their vows to the Lord. You commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. I will not hear what he has to say. They're denying the words of the Lord. They're rejecting his provision, and they have forgotten his salvation for them. Yahweh says, Behold, 
will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Judgment is coming against the people of Israel. To keep it relevant, I think it's easy to get uh, wrapped up in the idea of, uh, of since I'm a part of the church, I'm, I'm free from any accountability. I have my member card. CFC doesn't have those, so if you don't have a membership card with CFC's name on it, it's okay. But I have my member card, and so I'm safe. I'm good. And we proclaim condemnation on everyone around us. You do not behave like me. Ha <laughs> ha, the Lord will get you. And we ignore the sin in our own lives and the injustice that we perform. And the Lord, as we will see, is not afraid to say, my people, you're not acting like my people. Chapter 3, we see the messages to Israel and that Yahweh is not afraid to discipline his elect. It says, hear this word, verse 1 of chapter 3, that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 12 when the Lord makes a promise to Abraham saying, I have chosen you, Abraham, and your family. I will make you into a great nation. And even though that you will be sent into Egypt, I will redeem them. I will save them. And he did. He brought them up out of the land of Egypt and he knew them. And here they are committing sins of injustice and unrighteousness and this is therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Yahweh is not afraid to discipline his people when they need it. He will do what his people need. And make no mistake, it is him who does it. Amos writes in verses 3 through 6 a series of rhetorical questions with obvious answers. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? And so on to the end of verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Verse 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants the prophets, and an <clears throat> the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? The Lord roars from Zion, as he said in chapter 1, and you will hear it. You'll know that it's me who's bringing this judgment upon you for your sins of wickedness. Yahweh is behind this judgment, and it is good. It is good that he's judging them. What's key to understand here, though, is that Yahweh is just not being vindictive. He's, just, he's not just being a quick-to-anger God. He's, that's not his way. He's slow to anger. But hey, Yahweh, this is only the fourth sin, right? Well, again, it's not a literal four, and we see that even in chapter 4, verses 6, and uh, all the way through verse 11. 
It says, uh, uh, verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water. It would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. And we see that again at the end of verse 9. You did not return to me. At the end of verse 10, you did not return to me. At the end of verse 11, you did not return to me. Judgment after judgment after judgment. Warning after warning after warning. Stop sinning. How many times do I have to show you? And yet you did not return to me. How much evidence do we need to see? of the effect of sin in our lives before we realize we need to return to the Lord. What's the number? Three or four, five, six, indefinitely. The Lord is long-suffering. Lord is patient. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But if his people, those that claim to be his people, do not turn to him, they will be judged. Verse 12, 13. Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind, and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. They will hear his name and they won't forget it. The creator, the one who made them and knows their innermost parts, will have his way. He will defend his holy name from those who would seek to defile it. See in chapters 5 and 6, this exposure of this religious hypocrisy in the people of Israel. They've been doing injustice and unrighteousness, as I've said before, but what exactly is it that they're doing? They're extorting the poor. You see here in, in a... See, here we go, verses... 11 and following, therefore, because you trample on the, this is chapter 5, verse 11, therefore, because you trample on the, trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. They have not done acts of righteousness or justice. Righteousness being uh, having a right relationship with Yahweh and with each other. Equity, despite social differences. And justice being actions, tangible actions taken to correct such injustices. And they have not done it. They've ignored the poor. Much like the Proclamations of Jesus in the New Testament. Parable of the rich man. 
He ignored Lazarus. And so many others who ignored those in need. They hoarded wealth to themselves because they thought they were gods. They thought what was good was to take care of myself in my own. They ignored those in need. They did not love their neighbor. They did not love God. James 1.27 says, True religion is this, to take care of the widow and the orphan and to keep oneself pure. There's an adage nowadays that says, uh, Christianity is about relationship, not religion. Or however many different ways you can say that. And I, I appreciate the spirit of it, that we're not saved by what we do. Uh, we're not saved by the, uh, you know, going to church. We're not saved by serving at the soup kitchen. We are saved by the blood of Christ and being united with him. And his righteousness is imputed to us. It is a relationship we have with God that saves us, but Christianity is still religion. He calls his people to act, to do things. The Bible says this is religion. You will act a certain way, and the people of Israel and Amos are not acting this way. Christianity is a relationship, but it is a religion. Works come from that relationship. A changed heart that will do justice and righteousness, that will follow the law of the Lord, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Which is the same law that the Israelites had. It looked different under the Mosaic Covenant, but it was the same law summed up in this, to love God and love others. And they were not doing it, these Israelites. How have we not done it? Do we see the poor, the entrances to our neighborhoods, at the crossroads to Target, on our way to go buy stuff at the clearance section, do we ignore the people who are needy? Do we see injustice in the world? There's a lot of proclamations about it today and recently. Are we committing true justice? Are we proclaiming good news? Liberty to the captives? As Jesus' own mission was. We follow in those footsteps of Jesus, our Savior, who proclaimed good news to us, who made us free. Do we give that to others? The gospel isn't social justice, I will say that. It isn't uh, trusting in a politician to make programs. It is trusting in a God who cares for those in need and his people tangibly serving them. It isn't social justice, but it's still justice. It's still taking care of people. It's still seeing the poor and needy. And not just saying, God bless you, and moving on. It's saying, let me bless you. Here, take, these, take this cloak so that you may be warm. 
Take this food so that you may be full. That is justice and righteousness. That is loving God and loving others. That is how a holy God wants his holy people to live. And the Israelites were not doing such. They did this and they were committing acts of idolatry. When Jeroboam the first first rebelled and made the northern kingdom of Israel, he set up two idols, one in the north and one in the south, to show the people who their God was. They worshipped those idols, and through time they committed more acts of atrocity, more evil, more injustice, and they served other gods, gods of money, gods of sex, gods of uh, 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 fertility of the land. Think of Baal as one. There were several others. The Asherah poles, if, you, if you're familiar with those from the, from the text, they served these false gods. And because they served these evil gods, they became evil in of themselves. These unjust gods, these gods of chaos, these gods of, of child sacrifice, these gods of war, they became like them. We become like the gods we worship. We may not, in today, worship a god named Baal. We may not bow down to a little wooden idol on our mantle. But we may worship human reason, human achievement. We may worship um, freedom to do whatever I want. Follow your truth. And what does that turn into? Well, it turns into... I'm going to ignore the haters. I'm going to take care of myself or do my own thing and ignore any limitations that any sort of God would dare claim on me. But instead, Amos implores us as he implored the people of Israel to seek Yahweh, to seek God, turning back to the uh, early part of verse five, uh, chapter 5. Verse 5, Yahweh says to his people, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, where these idols are. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Seek Yahweh. Seek the Holy One, not the false holy lands. Later on in verse 14 of that same chapter, it says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good. And establish justice in the gate, a.k.a. where the poor man lives. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Notice Amos says in the early part of chapter 5, Seek Yahweh. And in the latter part, seek good. Those aren't different imperatives. They're seeking the same thing, the same person. Yahweh himself is what's good. When you seek Yahweh, you are seeking good. When you strive after the Lord, your heart will be changed to commit acts of justice and righteousness, to follow him. 
These people don't. Israelites don't. They trust, instead of in the Holy One, they trust in their holy places. These false holy places. Bethel, Gilgal, these temples, these false idols. They trust in those things. And yet they're still holding on to Yahweh somehow. They're saying, oh, the day the Lord is coming, that'll judge the other nations, and they'll fall down. But Yahweh is saying, why do you want the day of the Lord? Woe to you! Verse 18 of chapter 5, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. What a crappy hike. (laughs) Fleeing a lion to run into a bear. Leaning your hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Yahweh hates their false religion and says, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Yahweh despises religious hypocrisy, a false servitude. Inspect yourselves before you proclaim the day of the Lord on someone else. Are you ready? Are you right with God? Before you take communion, Paul warns us, search your hearts, don't take it in an unworthy manner. Are you in union with the church? Are you in union with Christ? Then take it. But don't take it falsely because you think you're hot stuff of your own righteousness. Are you living in accordance with the law of God to love him, to love others, to seek his holiness? We see that Israel did not, they did not repent, that the judgment did come Yahweh says in verses 25 to 27, Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sukkot, your king, and Kiun, your star god, and your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Later on, Verse, chapter 6, verses 9 through 14, again, Yahweh says, I will raise up a nation against you. This nation in history was the Assyrians. The Assyrians came down not 40 years after Amos was written, or after Amos uh, proclaimed these messages to them. Not 40 years later, the Assyrians came and brought the people of Israel into exile, killing many of them, ravaging them in judgment. Israel did not follow after Yahweh. They did not turn to him. And they suffered greatly. They did not see the long-suffering of Yahweh as an opportunity to turn to him. They saw it as an opportunity to be apathetic. 
They ignored his words. And we see his long-suffering yet again in, in chapter 7 and 8. 7 opens up, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts. Uh-oh, here's Joel again. <laughs> when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Amos interceded for the people of Israel, and the Lord delayed judgment. Again, verse 4 and following, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This reveals God's patience. His long-suffering. He tarries so that people may have a chance to repent. And though he is far more patient than we are, though he is far more long-suffering, verses 7 through 9 show that judgment will come nonetheless. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with the plumb line, with the plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. I don't know if you all know what a plumb line is, but just imagine a long, thin string with an arrowed weight at the bottom. And it shows, if you, if you hold it up, if I held it up here, you could see how vertically uh, straight this thing is. Is it? Crooked, or is it true? Yahweh says he's going to hold his plumb line to the people of Israel. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. These people are proving to be out of line with how the Lord made them to be. He wanted his people to be true. And this plumb line is revealing that they are not. And what do we do with the wall that's falling down? Well, we tear it down first. We see it again, and I'm going to skip a little bit and come back to it, but at the beginning of chapter 8, we see a similar metaphor, but this time with summer fruit. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit and he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. A song of despair in the land of Israel. Because like Overripe fruit, they are consumed. The part that I skipped over, chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, shows an example of the people of Israel and the, and the priest Amaziah. He's a priest of Bethel. 
He serves Jeroboam the second, and he, he's accusing Amos of, of uh, uh, insurrection or of uh, uh, being a, a turncoat. Like, hey, stop speaking against Jeroboam. If you stay here, you're going to get into like a you're going to get punishment for treason. Just just leave. Stop it. He says in verse 12, Oh, seer, go flee. Go away to the land of Judah and eat bread there. You know, go live there. Prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Amaziah, whether he could be really tough against Amos. He could be just saying, Hey, man, just go make a living there. Go back to your place where you came from. That's where you serve. This is where I serve. Let me take care of it. We, we, we do things differently here. But Amos answered, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Amos is saying, My word is true, not because it comes from me, a Judean, but it comes from Yahweh, the God over not just Judah, but of you and every other person in this world. Hear his word. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, some really awful things are going to happen to you, Amaziah to your wife, to your children, and to your land, and to you yourself. Because of your sin, you've denied hearing the word of Yahweh. We see it again, how the people in chapter 8, they did not hear this word. They refused to listen to the, to the law of the Lord, the committing injustice and unrighteousness. And in verse 11, Yahweh says, Fine then. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. They finally, like, okay, okay, we'll listen, we'll listen, we'll listen. Um, where are your prophets, Lord? It's like, well, you didn't want to listen to me. And judgment is here. Once judgment comes, once Christ returns again at that point, judgment is going to happen and there will be no word left to hear. What's done is done. I think that's a call for us just to listen now before it's too late. To proclaim the good news to those that are lost. Like, hear this. Hear it. It's good news. Turn to the Lord. He has grace for you. Will he not save you? And after time and time and time again of rejecting that word, they are judged. Again, you think of the rich man who denied Lazarus. He is burning in fire and is so hot and he begs for just a drip of water and doesn't get one. There is no comfort in eternal judgment. 
chapter 9, Amos has a final vision. After the locusts and after the plumb line and after the overripe fruit, he envisions the Lord standing beside the altar. The Lord said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And Amos goes on and on and on, showing how these people have no place to hide. For those who reject the Lord, there is no escape from his judgment. He will not miss a single enemy of his. They will all be judged. The Lord is thorough. The Lord is complete and he's He's perfect in all that he does. Verse 9 of chapter 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with the sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. They have a false sense of security in their religious practices that makes them think that I will escape the judgment. The Lord says, no, you will not. I know your thoughts, O man. I know your thoughts, O woman. And I know that your heart is evil. And you will not escape. Do not trust in your holy places. Do not trust in your false acts of righteousness. Do not trust in your wealth or in your ability should have trusted in me. Now, all these chapters and verses and verses and verses and proclamations and oracles and visions of, of judgment and finally to this glimmer of hope. We see a desolate house, the house of Israel broken down, taken away, plundered, the people dead or exiled. The Lord has shaken the house, but he says in verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The Lord is faithful to judge those who are not his people, but he is faithful also to save his true people, to rebuild what was broken down, to cut down the lofty and the proud, and to raise up the humble and those who admit their need for a savior. And what are these days that we have seen? These Israelites 
and Amos are left here with a promise of rebuilding. The house of David that fell will rise again. And with other texts, we know that this a Davidic Messiah, an anointed one to come. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. Jesus, the one raised up in the house of David, one who says, you can tear down this temple and in three days it will rise again. And he calls all his people from all nations, not just Israel, not just Judah, but all nations to come and worship with him, to feast with the mountains that drip sweet wine. Our fortunes will be rebuilt. Not a wealth that we have amassed ourselves from the injustices we've committed, but a wealth from the Lord's own house. Wealth of, of grace and of love that changes us that we may Love him and love others too. There is, there is hope. And praise be to God that we know this Messiah, that we know God's construction plans, that he's building a city. We may feast with him. A land flowing with, with milk and honey, a land filled with justice and righteousness, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Let me pray.